want to thank the organizers of the character studies these past years. We're drawing to a close, I think, and um, it's been a very profitable study. Um, it's uh, good to look at the lives that we've considered. I've drawn uh, applications from those lives, and we'd like to draw application from the life of Claudius Lysias this morning. But before turning to Acts 21, I'd like to turn first to Proverbs 18 and catch a quick uh, reality check right there at Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, verse 13. He who, a- he, who, excuse me, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. The Lord uh, is addressing the man who's already made up his mind. He's already passed judgment on an issue before he hears all the facts. And we're going to see that this morning as we uh, consider the life of Claudius Lysias. Uh, background here now to uh, Acts 21. The background here is um, Paul has completed his third missionary journey. He's returned to Jerusalem and he's got wonderful reports of the great things God has done among the Gentiles. This will be his last visit to Jerusalem. James and the elders in Jerusalem recommended that Paul reestablish, reaffirm his ties with the Jews by going to the temple and undergoing a ceremonial purification. We may disagree with Paul. The um, Bible scholars debate about uh, some of the things that Paul did in the passage that we're going to study this morning. We're not here to to debate. We're here to study the life of Claudius Lysias. So we'll save the debate for another time. So, uh, Acts 21, we pick up in verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Verse 29, they supposed, they supposed. Um, The dictionary defines suppose as to imagine, to assume, to consider, to think. These Jews made a conclusion. They saw Paul in the temple. They saw Trophimus out in town with Paul. So the conclusion is Paul brought Trophimus into the temple, they supposed. From what we know of Paul, 
and his respect for uh, the law and the temple, would you suppose that Paul took Trophimus into the temple and defiled it? No, I wouldn't either. The Jews jumped to a conclusion. They answered the matter before they had heard it to their folly and shame. They should have inquired. They should have searched out. They should have looked diligently into the matter. It would have saved a lot of uh, folly and shame. Verse 31. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Then he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another, so that he, the commander, could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult. He commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs... He had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him! The commander in verse 31. In the original, that word means to rule 1,000. So he was a commander of a 1,000 soldiers. A centurion would be a ruler of 100 soldiers, you Latin scholars. So, potentially, a commander would have how many centurions under him? Good. All right. You passed your test. The equivalent today to this commander might be a colonel in the army or a captain in the Navy. And we don't uh, find out the commander's name for quite a while, but in chapter 23, we learn that it's Claudius Lysias, okay, commander of a thousand very responsible individual. News came to the garrison in verse 31. Um, Historians actually locate the garrison adjacent to the temple. So news didn't have to travel very far to reach the ears of the the commander. The commander of uh, a detachment of soldiers ran down, including uh, a bunch of steps, to the site outside the temple, Had we been there uh, on the street, we could have heard the clanking of armor and the the, uh, rattle of swords and scabbards as the soldiers double-timed through the streets to get to to the riot. Why did the commander come with the detachment? I don't know. It uh, seems as if uh, a man of authority uh, like this colonel could have uh, sent one of his centurions to look into it. But uh, this commander may have suffered from ambition and pride and an urge to be in the limelight. As he heard the pandemonium in the, uh, in the area outside the temple and was uh, fastening on his sword, he may have mentally been going through his list of ten most wanted. And... Uh, As he thought on that list, he wondered who could the Jews have captured? Who could they have caught uh, that's causing such an uproar outside the temple? Assumptions. 
assumptions. The Jews ceased beating Paul when, uh, when they saw the soldiers come and the soldiers bound him with chains, two chains, maybe hands and feet. Unfortunately, the commander could not ascertain the truth about his captive because of all the noise. Verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak with you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul surprised the commander with a question in Greek. Assumptions must have been contagious from the Jews because uh, from his question in verse 38, we learn immediately what the commander had been thinking all along. Aren't you that Egyptian, who uh, that insurrectionist who led 4,000 out into the wilderness? I thought I had a real trophy here. We're going to borrow that word suppose from verse 29 and apply it to our commander because uh, he already makes one supposition that proves very wrong. The consequences of his momentary bias with all its fame and with all its shame and folly will follow the commander through all his dealings with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Verse 40. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great silence. Perhaps uh, you could hear the heavy breathing of his attackers as they as they were catching their breath. And when there was great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. A great hush had fallen over the crowd as Paul had had raised his hand there on the stairs and uh, even more as he addressed them in their native Hebrew. The commander must have understood some Hebrew or he must have had a translator there at his side. So we want to listen very carefully to what Paul says to the Jews because Lysias will be following. He will be uh, tracking along with what Paul is saying and he's going to refer to this in his letter to the governor at the end of our passage. Verse 2, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to, uh, who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And now uh, Paul reaches back 20, about 26 years to his um, meeting of the Lord Jesus. 
Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. What did the Jews hear? Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He is actively superintending the lives of his creatures. And yet the Jews remain silent. They're attentive. They're listening to what Paul said. What did Lysias hear? He heard the same thing. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which you are appointed, which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. There is certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up to him, looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. That is amazing to relate to the Jews that the God of our fathers, the patriarchs, the, um, uh, the fathers of old, has chosen you, that you should know His will, Paul, and see the just one and hear the voice of His mouth. So Paul was um, uh, selected. He was chosen by God to a very special ministry again. The Jews are silent. They're taking it in. They're listening to what Paul says. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. No reaction, no response, just quiet from the Jews. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Whoa, wait. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. What did Paul say? He said, I will send you to the Gentiles. To the nations. This was too much for the Jews. What are you going to take to the nations? The promises that God had committed to to Israel, the, uh, the law and the prophets, you're going to take those to the Gentiles? No way. 
This little man, Paul, was not going to take the Jewish promises to the nations, to the uncircumcised. They would not permit it. Away with this fellow from the earth. He's not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought to the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that they might know why they shouted so against him. The Romans had a surefire way to extract a confession from a suspect without all that time-consuming interrogation and uh, uh, interviewing witnesses. Put him under the lash and you'll find uh, they're most cooperative. Had they gotten the tunic off Paul, they would have seen evidence of three previous scourgings. And as they bound him with thongs or straps, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? In his haste for results and perhaps in his ambition and lust for success, Lysias had neglected to ask a very simple question. Are you a Roman citizen? He had bound Paul. <clears throat> uh, an offense that was itself punishable. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Then immediately, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. They just melted into the, uh, into the garrison. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The commander was now guilty of a crime and fearful of exposure for what he had done. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Unsatisfied with the ambiguity of the charges so far, the commander decided to go on a fishing expedition. The council chamber of the Sanhedrin would be his pond, and Paul would be the bait. And he would uh, set Paul in before them and uh, get some charges against him. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, 
the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Was Paul fair in claiming to be a Pharisee? He would write the Philippians and um, renounce his uh, Phariseeism. He would say that it was uh, a thing that he, he gave up. Uh, he would count as loss in comparison with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was that fair? Um, fair or not fair, he rolled a theological smoke bomb right into the council. <laughs> In any case, what did Lysias hear? Paul said, for the hope and resurrection of the dead... I am being judged. Might Lysias have edged forward on his seat? What am I hearing? Was this a possible charge against Paul? A confession even? Picking up in uh, verse 12. Sorry. um, Seven. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the, of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might again be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So, did the fishing trip produced results, I believe uh, it did, uh, that uh, Lysias heard that the issue here was the resurrection of the dead. I thought I think that is uh, extremely valuable for Lysias. And when it was day, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. This bold nephew of Paul's, uh, we don't have any indication how old he was, that he was, um, uh, he was a young man, certainly, and uh, I'm going to guess uh, for um, sake of illustration, perhaps uh, Joshua and Caleb's age, maybe he was about nine years old. He was a brave young man. 
Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? To the commander's credit, he gave this youngster a hearing. He was tenderly, he was tender, fatherly, reassuring. He took him by the hand and uh, led him aside. Perhaps the commander had boys or uh, perhaps grandsons of his own. And he, the nephew, said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. The youngster was uh, not only brave, but he was very bold because he not only alerts the commander to the plot in verse 20, but he exhorts the commander in verse 21, do not yield to them. (laughs) So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Again, to the commander's credit, uh, he acted on the lad's advice. In verse 23, he called for two centurions. What's the lesson here? Well, I believe to adults, uh, the lesson is not to despise our youth, the youth among us, but to give them a hearing, hear them out. They've got important things to say. And the lesson for the youth is live in a way, live responsibly, live uh, in submission to your parents so that when you do say something, uh, they will not belittle you. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their own law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. How fearful was the commander for his reputation? We find him going way overboard in the um, escort that he gave to Paul. Two centurions 
in verse 23, 200 soldiers, infantry, 70 horsemen. I was, tra- I was trying to think about 70 horsemen. If, uh, if you were to order um, horsemen to prepare for a, a two-day trip, uh, think, of the, uh, think of the space they'd need out here in the parking lot, um, out on the property behind, out in the property in front. 70 horsemen. Uh, what a um, what a powerful force that was! But uh, Paul, uh, the commander says, um, not just uh, seventy cavalry, but these infantry, and uh, add to that two hundred lancers, uh, two hundred spearmen. Okay. The commander was uh, unnecessarily showing force. The two centurions were there uh, with their helmets off, scratching their heads. What what's going on here? But to a commander who was ambitious and guilty and fearful, it must have seemed right to show the governor that he knew Paul was a Roman citizen. Let's make a show of it. A second thing shows how um, fearful the commander was for his reputation in the the way he phrases uh, his rescue of Paul. In verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He exaggerated his claim to the governor. He didn't know that Paul was a Roman citizen. He wasn't rescuing him. He was laying hands on an Egyptian assassin, an insurrectionist. But he was, uh, he made a mistake and he was fearful that uh, the governor would find out. To us who know the Lord, we have no need to lie. In fact, the Lord uh, does not permit it for he alone is our defense. And we don't have to defend our reputation. Uh, Psalm of David, Psalm 59 reads, I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Why did David need mercy? What is mercy? <clears throat> mercy is God withholding what we deserve. David made mistakes. David deserved punishment. But he retreated into his refuge, who is none other than the Lord, Jehovah, God. And he found his his safety there. I make mistakes at work. I have to explain to my boss that, boss, I made a mistake. It's got consequences. And um, yet, because of the Lord being my refuge and my defense, I don't have to defend my reputation. I have to explain the mistake, but uh, I don't have to to try to um, explain how great I am or how I did things right yesterday. And uh, um, I, I can retreat into the safety of the Lord's shelter. We have no need to defend our reputation. We have no need to hide the facts to alter, adjust, distort, or otherwise change the facts because the Lord is the believer's defense. 
Many times I have retreated at work, just at work, into this refuge. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I did wrong, but I'm not going to defend myself. I made a mistake. I was wrong. <clears throat> I have, on certain occasions, uh, taken the opportunity to uh, try to uh, clean up my reputation and, and um, uh, make it look not so bad. Um, but these efforts have always been weak. And they've always raised more suspicion in my boss's mind than, uh, than it actually uh, strengthened. What a strong advocate we have in the Lord God. He is um, committed to defending us uh, and our reputations in the workplace or in any place. Lysias lied. He compounded a sin that he had already committed. He had uh, bound a Roman citizen. But now he's saying that he rescued the Roman citizen. Well, how serious is that? Remember that David's adultery with Bathsheba started with just a look. He looked, he saw, he desired, he asked for her. He committed adultery with her and murdered her husband to cover, uh, to cover the fact. Fabrication or stretching the truth is serious, especially when we use it to hide other sins because it snowballs. We start, uh, we start doing other things to, to cover. A general instruction for employees, for servants, for men and women under authority, is uh, found in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. Bond servants or servants or employees or sons and daughters Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. For whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Paul was writing to the Colossians and he draws a contrast here between eye service as a men pleaser and sincerity of heart serving as to the Lord. Um, we can do a lot in the, in the way of eye service every time uh, the boss or the company president walks past our my cubicle and furiously writing and then, uh, boss is leaving tomorrow, he's taking the day off. Okay, well, uh, Skate City. Um, that's eye service. <clears throat> that's performing when the eyes are, are on me. But uh, serving in the fear of God means that uh, I'm always under the Lord's Observation. He is the one who ultimately writes my performance evaluation. He's the one who is um, uh, gauging my, my performance. So um, I told my boss, I said, um, when he took over, I said, uh, I know you're my boss and um, I'm going to do my best for you, but my real boss is the Lord Jesus. And... Um, 
your evaluation of my performance, I see as his evaluation of my performance. So I want you to tell me uh, what, what kind of job I'm doing for you because I'm seeing the Lord Jesus as, um, as my ultimate boss. And uh, that, uh, I think, has cleared a lot of um, potential confusion there as to why I do the things I do. Uh, he didn't re- my boss didn't require me to do this. Why are you doing that? Well, because I think it's right. I think that's right. And I'm, I'm not wanting to give eye service. I'm not a man pleaser, I hope, but, uh, but serving the Lord in, uh, in his fear. Had Lysias adopted that as his own, um, he could have saved himself a lot of uh, folly and trouble. In the record of Scripture, Claudius Lysias was truly a tragic character. And uh, this is why. <clears throat> the Lord reveals profound things about a life sometimes in only a few words. And he does that in, in Commander Lysias's life in verse 29. Lysias writes, I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law. Questions of their law. Lysias had struggled so much to know the reason why the Jews accused Paul. And in that struggle, he found two things. He found that uh, Paul believed and he taught and he lived the resurrection. And that was an offense to, to many of the Jews. Jesus is risen and he's alive and he's ruling in the lives of sinners like Paul and like we who know him, and even we who don't know him. So there was the resurrection. Lysias heard that. He knew that uh, was true of, uh, knew it was true as Paul proclaimed it. And secondly, <clears throat> the Jews objected to Paul's taking God's truth to the Gentiles. This was the second uh, charge. They got so upset when Paul was... Um, uh, proclaiming, was testifying to them of his meeting with the Lord Jesus, that uh, it was at that moment when he was sent to the Gentiles that, um, that they reacted uh, violently. Paul was taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Lysias turned that over in his mind. Well, who were the Gentiles? Lysias was one. So these were not questions of Jewish law. As he said in his letter to the governor, these were realities that Lysias had to face and that ultimately he rejected. He supposed that the resurrected Christ and the gospel of salvation belonged to the Jews alone. He supposed. He supposed. He answered the matter before he really heard it and considered it. Lysias saddled up the messenger of Christ and sent him down the road. Lysias mentally did the same with the message of Christ by calling it a matter of Jewish law. It doesn't concern me. It's the Jews. It belongs to the Jews. Really, it was intended for him. Lysias, this was all intended for you. The resurrected Christ, the one who reigns in heaven. The gospel, the news of salvation, that Christ is crucified and buried and risen for you, Lysias. 
That's for you. Paul, uh, uh, Lysias rejected and his rejection would be folly and shame to him. We're faced today with a decision that confronted Lysias. Is Jesus alive? Is he reigning? Is he coming soon? And is the gospel valid for us, Jew and Gentile? For many years, I, I thought these questions were best left to theologians and priests and religious people. I thought uh, Jesus is the Savior of sinners, but not mine. I saddled up God's messenger and uh, denied the, the message. Finally, I realized that Jesus as Savior of sinners is not enough. He's got to be my Savior. The message of the cross is my message. I realize that He returns again, not just for me, but uh, uh, for those who don't know Him to, uh, to weigh the consequences of their actions. The message of the life of Claudius Lysias is simply this. Don't dismiss the claims of Christ until you've given Him a fair hearing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the example of a seemingly obscure life like Claudius Lysias. Um, the truths that we can pull from these lessons, from this life, Lord, we uh, want to realize afresh, realize perhaps for the first time for some that the gospel is for us. The gospel is, is mine. And that you are risen and reigning and returning. We praise you, Lord. We uh, ask that we might be reminded of these truths as we go through the week. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.